0: Hi guys, it's Aaron and welcome to another episode of Causes or Cures. So, climate change. It's in the news daily, as is the Green New Deal. I i don't have too many good things to say about the Green New Deal. You know, it was a highly anticipated document or resolution, and when it finally came out, I read it, and I thought it was a parody. I actually started searching for the real one. Um, you know, it made such a mockery of climate change And it was like slowly lobbing a baseball to the GOP. And they were there with Aquaman to hit it out of the park. But what it lacked in sophistication, it made up for in... You know, let's keep it positive. Let's just talk about nuclear power. There was no mention of nuclear power in the Green New Deal, which was striking because I think it needs to be a part of the conversation. At the same time, no one really understands it. People are afraid of it. No one gets its practical implications. So today I'm chatting with my friend, Dr. Andy Karam, who is a world expert on all things nuclear. Truly, take a listen. Okay, so on the line, we have Dr. Andrew Karam. Andy, do you want to um, introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, the, the long version gets really tedious, so I'll stick with the shorter version, which is that I've been doing radiation safety since 1981. I started off with eight years in the Naval Nuclear Power Program, and when I was there, I learned how to operate nuclear reactors and learned their theory of operation. Then I trained other people on how to operate them for a couple of years. And after that, I spent four years on a nuclear fast attack submarine out of San Diego. After I got out of the Navy, I stayed in radiation safety. So my my jobs there have included working at universities, running radiation safety programs for our university and hospital, and then I also most recently worked for New York City. I was with the health department for several years helping to do rad nuke emergency response planning. And then I was with NYPD for several years doing radiological and nuclear interdiction or trying to prevent some sort of an attack. The only other thing that's really relevant is that my or I've got a bachelor's and master's in geology, a doctorate in environmental science, and I'm certified in my profession.
0: Um And... So we're going to talk about nuclear power today, and you're obviously, you're considered a world expert on all of this stuff. Um, and it's been in the news lately, because people were talking about the Green New Deal, um, which I, I didn't find it very realistic. I read it, I read it, it read like a progressive bucket list to me. Um, but I did, what I found interesting was that there was no mention of nuclear power um, as a form of uh, of energy, of alternative energy. So Let's just jump right into it, and um, why don't you explain how nuclear power works uh, at a very basic level, because (laughs) I'm sure you know a lot of things that the rest of us don't.
1: Uh, Yeah, we we spent about six months learning a lot of this stuff at Naval Nuclear Power School, and that was like eight to ten hours a day, but I'll I'll try to... (laughs) Condense it down,
0: yeah, <laughs> like uh, nuclear power for dummies. Like you could.
1: <laughs> well, or, or maybe just for nu- nuclear power for the benefit of people that haven't had a lot of science and math. There, there you go. <laughs> but the, 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 the short the short version is that uranium atoms are really big and they're easy to break up. And so if you split a uranium atom, if you hit it with a neutron, then it breaks up into two pieces. Those are called radioactive fission fragments, and we'll come back to those later when we talk about radioactive waste. But the important thing is that when it breaks up, it releases a lot of energy, like over about a million times or more than a million times as much energy as when you break a chemical bond by burning it. So you can cram a lot of energy into just a little bit of uranium. The thing, though, is that once you make this energy, you've got to be able to get it out of the fuel so that so that you can make use of it to, like, in our case, to make steam, to turn turbines, to make electricity. So that's that's where the reactor plant comes in is you circulate a lot of water past all of these, and it's trillions of uranium atoms every second that are fissioning, and you circulate water through that, and the water might be at four or 500 degrees, which is fairly hot to us but it's a lot cooler than what the fuel would be at if you didn't remove all that energy. So that's why they call it reactor coolant even though it's really hot. Anyhow, you circulate the water past the past the uranium fuel, it removes all that heat and so now you've got a bunch of hot water which isn't really all that impressive either. But what you can do with that hot water is in a boiling reactor or boiling water reactor you just let that turn to steam and then the steam goes through it's a very high pressure gas and that turns turbines. In a pressurized water reactor, you put that through a heat exchanger, almost like a car radiator, where it heats up water on the other side. And then again, it turns that into steam, and the steam shoots through the pipes, turns the turbines, and it's the turning the turbines that makes the electricity. So kind of a short nutshell is that the uranium atoms split, they produce heat. The water circulates past the fissioning uranium. It removes that heat, and then it turns that heat or it uses that heat to make steam, and the steam is what turns the turbines and makes the electricity.
0: Very cool. And what about the natural nuclear reactor?
1: Yeah, that that was really kind of cool. Back in the 70s, some French scientists realized that they'd found a uranium deposit in West Africa that just didn't have... It didn't have the isotopic composition that they thought that it should or that all the other uranium on Earth has. If you go anywhere on Earth, there's two main flavors of uranium. There's uranium-238, which is good for making paperweights, and there's (laughs) uranium-235, which is good for making nuclear reactors or nuclear weapons. And every place you go on Earth... 99.2% of the uranium atoms you count are going to be U-238 and about seven-tenths of an atom or seven atoms out of every thousand are going to be U-235, except in this one place it had only about half the U-235 they expected. So when they looked into it, they realized that just by chance, nature had produced a natural nuclear reactor that operated, it was critical, about two billion years ago. And it probably operated for 100,000 years or so off and on, and then it shut down.
0: That's really cool. <laughs> it,
1: it, it really is. I would love to visit there.
0: Um, maybe next next vacation.
1: Um, One can hope.
0: Yeah. <laughs> of all the places you could go. Um, so, I think too, when people hear the word nuclear, nuclear energy, nuclear reactor, it produces fear. Um, so, what in terms of problems? Um, what do you foresee as the problems and how do you maintain, um, or prevent, you know, obviously we've, we've heard of, you know, the spills and, and the, the very famous cases. Um, so I guess, you know, radioactive waste, what about that?
1: Well, every form of energy produces some kind of waste. You know, coal, it's fly ash. With natural gas, you've got a lot of pipes and scale on the pipes and things like that, plus the CO2 coming out the other end. With solar and wind, you've got the waste that comes from manufacturing, the the wind turbines and the solar cells. With nuclear energy, you've got radioactive waste. And that's the big difference is that the other types of waste are chemical waste, and with nuclear power, it's radioactive waste. That's something that frightens people. And a lot of the reason for that is because people have a fear of radiation. you know it's called radiation phobia sometimes that term is used derisively to make fun of people but it's <laughs> what do i want to say it's it's real. you know there are members of my family who are scared of radiation they can't understand how i can work with it. a lot of the reason for that is because people just don't understand radiation. we can't see it, we can't sense it, your skin's not going to tingle. you know there's just no way for us to tell if radiation is there and it's that lack of knowing, you know, the fact that you have to have a piece of technology to tell you if radiation is there, that can be frightening. Just not knowing about something can be frightening also. You know, when, when my son was, when my son was younger, he was scared of the dark and it wasn't the dark that he was scared of. It was all the things that he couldn't see and imagined were there. You know, so when you turn the lights on, open the closet door, look under the bed and everything, he can see that there's nothing there. Then the fear goes away. Similarly with radiation, a lot of times as people learn more about it if they just really look into it you know with an open mind read read some unbiased information they come to realize that yeah radiation can be harmful and there's no denying that but it takes a lot more radiation to be harmful than what most people think And just as kind of an analogy, if you drink too much water, that can hurt you. It can deplete the electrolytes and you you can suffer from that. If you do a Google search, you can find images of people trying to finish marathons who just collapse because they've had too much fresh water. And they've depleted their electrolytes. But we know that we absolutely positively have to have water in order to survive. You know, so I can't say that radiation is necessary for life, but I can say that, you know, as with so many other things, it's the amount of radiation we get that makes a difference. A little bit of radiation doesn't hurt us. A lot of radiation can. The question is where the dividing line is between those two. And that's something that we're still trying to nail down.
0: And you know, and uh, and I've, I've read a little bit, you know, um, where they say uh, creating an, a nuclear plant or reactor is, is very expensive. It takes a long time. Um, and you need the right people to to manage it. Uh, and, and I mean, do you think that's it's something that's feasible um, that we can do here in the States?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I, I guess I can think of a couple of examples. One is it. That... We've built a couple hundred nuclear reactors in the U.S. over the years when we include the research reactors and, and the commercial power plants. And we've had a handful of accidents that I can only think of one that's actually resulted in fatalities due to the radiation. You know, if we compare that with the number of people who have died in coal mines or floods when some of the coal ash holding ponds break, you know, the, the death toll from nuclear is pretty low. But, you know, just the fact that we've built all these reactors and had only a handful of accidents, I think, is, uh, I can't really call it a testament, but it certainly indicates that we know how to build reactors safely. But even more than that, the the Navy has, had, or has built a couple hundred reactors over the years without having a single accident. You know, that in and of itself indicates that we, yeah, we do know how to build reactors that can operate safely and that can operate safely for a couple decades at a time.
0: Do you think it's cost effective?
1: It depends on what scale you're looking at. If yeah. you're looking at just from the time you break ground on the plant to just the time that you throw the last shovel of dirt into the into the decommissioned site, it's fairly expensive. On the other hand, if you also look at the extended cost, and by that I mean how much pollution does it spread, what's the footprint of trying to of trying to keep it running then it becomes a lot more cost effective. You know, for example, I grew up in Ohio and I've visited strip mines where they were basically blasting mountaintops off into valleys and using that to get the coal out. My master's advisor used to, or he did a lot of work on acid mine drainage, and that is something that can be devastating. You know, I've also seen places, I lived in the Adirondacks for a while, and I've seen places there where you had lakes that were poisoned with acid rain, and where the forests were devastated by it, that is expensive. If you're looking at global warming, and you know, even if we, well, first of all, if we try to stop it or to reverse it, that's going to be trillions of dollars or more. And if we're looking at adapting to it, you know, just moving people out of harm's way, that's going to be expensive also. So if you look at these expense or at these extended costs, you know down the line, not over the life cycle of the plant itself, but the plant plus its effects, Nuclear power isn't too bad.
0: Okay, so I'm, you know, going to my town's meeting. They want to build a nuclear plant. You know, I don't know, twenty miles away. Um, I'm worried about my kids. What What would you say to me?
1: Ah, I, I guess I could show you <laughs> pictures of my kids because we spent <laughs> we, we spent about five years living just a few miles away from a nuclear reactor near Rochester. You know, I, yeah. Yeah. It it, it's one of those things where, first of all, in the absence of an accident, nuclear reactors don't give off that much radiation. Yeah, yeah, they give off some, but they give off less radiation actually than coal-fired power plants do because coal, it turns out, has a fair amount of radioactivity in it. In fact, one of the most radioactive things I've ever held was a chunk of coal because just because the geochemistry of uranium, coal can be fairly radioactive. So, in the absence
0: fascinating, so a a coal plant gives off more radiation than a nuclear plant.
1: Yeah, that that was something that actually floored me. I was going through some EPA data and just trying to calculate for myself the amount of radiation dose to the population per gigawatt hour of electricity produced, and coal blew nuclear out of the water.
0: That's incredible. I, I grew up in Northeast PA, so... I'm probably yep. screwed.
1: <laughs> ah, no, it, it's not. Well, the, the radiation is not the worst thing coming out of the stacks of a coal fired power plant. Yeah. yeah. There's also the particulates and the heavy metals, and just everything else that comes out of there is worse for you than the radiation. Yeah. But the, then, but then I've also worked on a consulting project in the oil fields in North Dakota, and there's a lot of natural radioactivity associated with oil and natural gas extraction. Yeah. You know, it's just due to the geochemistry of uranium. But yeah, that's. It's such a fascinating topic to so many people but I'll just pass on getting into the details of that right now.
0: Right, but there's there may be in your opinion more health consequences or health effects um associated associated with coal and oil versus nuclear.
1: Yeah, because what comes out of their stacks in addition to the greenhouse gases are you know some of these or what I want to say is some of the particulates that are bad for the lungs. Right. And than just you know mercury, lead, things like that associated with the uranium, something or I'm sorry, not with associated with the uranium, associated with the coal, right? But but something else I wanted to mention too, is I was talking about under normal operations and not accidents, but there have been some very highly publicized radiation accidents. You know, Fukushima being the most right. recent, Chernobyl being the other one, and with this I can speak a little from personal experience. Yeah, I was in Japan about a month after the Fukushima accident, and we spent three days in the area. We got as close to the reactor as we could. They stopped us at the 20-kilometer or 12-mile line, but I was taking radiation measurements the whole time I was there. I picked up more radiation on the plane flights to and from Japan than I picked up during our three days in the footprint of the plume that settled out, the areas wow. that had been evacuated. And, wow. yeah, and, and first, I... I can say that the radiation levels were clearly elevated. You know, there was no doubt that we were in the plume. I was measuring our dosimeters every single day. But I also went through and did some calculations, and the worst case is if you lived your entire life at the hottest spot that I visited, you would get a lifetime radiation exposure of about 80 rem. That's not trivial. That's going to give you a measurable increase in your risk of getting cancer, but that increase is maybe 4%. So it would take the lifetime cancer mortality risk from 25% to 29%. And I'm not trying to say that that's nothing or that that's trivial, but that's in the hottest spot in the plume and under the most conservative circumstances, you know, spending your entire life there from the day you were born till the day that you died, that's... That, well, for, first, I guess that assumption is unrealistic. But second, when you consider that, that's not a tremendously high risk.
0: Right, right. What, what about the radioactive particles that ended up on the vegetables? Uh, people were really concerned about that for a while. I'm sure you remember that.
1: Yeah, and, and I can understand that. You know, I, I guess radiation disaster 101 is wash your fruits and vegetables <laughs> because you don't want to ingest the stuff. It was also and my
0: grandmother's advice. So.
1: Yeah, and, and it's true. <laughs> Yeah. But it's, you know, but first of all, that's one of those things. If you do wash your fruits and veggies, then you don't have to worry about that. If you so it don't, gets rid of
0: it. gets rid yeah. of it. Yeah.
1: Because yeah. Because the, the analogy that I use when I, te- or when I do training for emergency responders is that radioactive contamination is, it's not the same as what we think of as the other WMD. It's not like chemical or biological. Right. To to me, radioactive contamination is kind of like changing a diaper. You don't want to get it on you, but if you do, you wash your hands and you go on with your day.
0: I love that. That's a great, yeah, I love that.
1: Yeah, but I, I did reactor water chemistry in the Navy for about six of the years that I was in, and I had skin contamination well, probably 20 or 30 times, and every single time I was able to wash it off in about five or 10 minutes with soap and water. And for that matter, at the university and hospital that I worked at, again, radioactive skin contamination, you can wash off with soap and water most of the time within a couple of minutes.
0: And I for everyone listening, I saw Andy recently and and he looks fine. So
1: <laughs> Well, except for the age-related changes like less hair and more gray. <laughs>
0: um let's talk a little bit about uh how nuclear compares to other forms of energy? And in your in your opinion, what should the role of nuclear energy be in the future?
1: Uh, I, first of all, I, I consider myself to be somewhat agnostic when it comes to nuclear energy. And what I mean by that is that I think that it should have a place, but I don't think that it is the answer to all of our problems. Yeah, but it should definitely have a place in the energy mix. Yeah, the reason for that is because a lot of the things that are touted as being alternative or or renewable energy. You just can't rely on them. They're not there every minute of every day. And so you can't run a hospital, for example, just hoping that the wind will be blowing when you're trying to do surgery or not doing surgeries at night because there's no sun. And so far we don't have city-sized batteries. You know, we We can't store up solar energy during the day and power New York City at night with that saved energy, which means that we've got to have some form of what they call baseline energy production, which is the stuff that you can count on any place, any time, you know, as they say, 24, 7, 365. So as far as that goes, nuclear is not a bad way to go to be part of the energy mix, you know, and what do I want to say? we're concerned about fossil fuels and rightly so you know with the greenhouse gas emissions and the particulates and everything else plus the environmental degradation just required to get the fossil fuels and to transport them and everything it's what we do best you know but yeah. part of the part of the reason for that is because we've been burning things for energy for 10,000 years and i guess that's something else that i think is kind of a shame is that after 10,000 years or longer actually that still seems to be our major form of producing energy is by burning things. Yeah, I would like to think that we've progressed from that. But anyhow, but getting back to nuclear, it's a good, relatively clean form of energy compared with the other forms of baseline energy. So I think it definitely should have a part in the energy mix. There are some places where they really should not have nuclear power. I'll get to that in just a minute. But then, But then we can augment the nuclear power with the renewables. And as we get better at storing that energy that comes during windstorms or on sunny days or whatever, as we get better at storing that, maybe the renewables can become a more important part of the energy mix and we can start easing off on nuclear. But for the moment, nuclear offers something that the other forms of energy don't. And something positive, which is why we really should stick with it. Again, it's a nice, reliable form of baseline energy that's not as polluting as the other nice, reliable forms of baseline energy
0: and it, and so it doesn't really seem realistic to just talk about you know solar and wind and completely ignore nuclear um, you know, to save us from uh, the the demise of global warming, so to speak.
1: We cannot, at least in in my opinion, we cannot go directly from coal and natural gas to renewables without at least a pit stop at nuclear, because the renewables are not ready to power our society, and the coal and natural gas are bad for a number of reasons. But like I said, we're not ready to go directly from one to the other right now, and if we wait until we are ready to make that direct step, it could be decades or even a century in the future.
0: Right. And I, and also there's a carbon footprint associated with, um, solar, um, and, and wind that we don't talk about in this.
1: Yeah. Or, or not just, I don't know that I would limit it to just a carbon footprint, but you know, people forget about the fact that when they see a windmill sitting there, just spinning and producing energy, the windmill had to be built which means the raw materials had to be mined, they had to be processed, they had to be manufactured into the windmill, and that had to be driven cross-country or sometimes shipped around the world, a lot come from China, to get to that hillside. And then once it got there, it had to be constructed, and over its entire life it has to be maintained. Plus you have to put up the power lines going from that to the city that it's powering, and there's a lot of electrical loss as far as electrical resistance in those power lines. At some point, that windmill is going to have to be replaced. You know, whether it's five years later, 10 years, 20, whatever, at some point it's going to have to be replaced, which means going through that whole process again and again and again, and as long as you've got a wind farm there. The same with solar. You've got to mine the raw materials. You've got to process them, except in that case, it takes a lot of chemical processing as well, and you have to install and maintain those. You know, there is no form of energy that's 100% renewable. There are just some that are more or less renewable
0: right and and that those are things we don't really think about let's talk a little bit about you mentioned um obviously global warming is an international problem and and the US um definitely should do its part to uh reduce emissions um but the US alone is not going to solve this problem and and you know other countries um obviously contribute a lot to to uh, uh carbon emissions um, but you mentioned that some countries should not have nuclear reactors.
1: Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, the, and and I the, the reason I kind of hesitated there is because I hate to say some countries should not because that sounds really judgmental about the countries. OK, so we,
0: ma- we can rephrase it. We can rephrase it.
1: Yeah, well, and, and maybe a better way to put it is there are some countries that are more ready for nuclear power or that. Maybe nuclear power is not the best thing for them right now, but it could be in the future. But basically what it comes down to is that nuclear reactors are big, they're expensive, and it takes a long time to build them. But in addition to that, they've got to be built right because this is one of those things where it's maybe not on the cutting edge of technology, but it certainly is a lot more cutting edge than a coal-fired power plant, or natural gas, or a water wheel, or something like that. These are com- complicated pieces of equipment that operate at high temperatures and high pressures, and there's a lot of stress, pretty much on every single component in there. Which means that they've got to be built to very exacting standards, and more importantly, and a lot of people don't really think about this, is they've got to be well regulated. You know, I don't, I don't care where you stand as far as on the political spectrum, there are some things that require governmental oversight. And in the case of nuclear reactors, that governmental oversight really is important because you need to have the inspectors there to make sure that it's being built to code. First, to make sure that it's being designed properly, make sure that the people who are building it and plan to operate it, make sure that they're competent to do so. Then you've got to check every step of the way to make sure that it's being built correctly. It's not uncommon for contractors to say, substitute bags of sand for bags of concrete. And if you're making a sidewalk or a street, it means you just have to pay to replace those more often. If you're building a containment dome, then it means that your containment dome could collapse when you need it the most. You know, the same thing if you're doing welds, quality assurance checks, all of these things are expensive. They're all very painstaking, and they've all got to be done absolutely correctly. If a country does not have the physical infrastructure to to build the plant right, Or if it doesn't have, I I guess you could say the human infrastructure, if it doesn't have the skilled technicians to, to do a lot of this work, well, yeah, then maybe you can build the infrastructure, you can train the technicians or bring them in from outside. But if it doesn't have the governmental apparatus to make sure everything's being done right and to enforce the regulations, you know, to force the contractor to do things properly, or if the government is corrupt, if they can be paid to take bribes to ignore something like a substandard weld or substandard concrete, then the reactors become much higher risk. There's a much higher probability that there's going to be an accident and we, we don't want that. So there are some countries that don't have the technological infrastructure, some that don't have the safety culture, some that don't have the the effectiveness in government in order to be able to really guarantee that the reactors will be built and operated properly.
0: I see. And in, in your line of work or you know, in your field, do you hear discussions about uh nuclear energy as as it relates to global warming and climate change and are, are you concerned about you know everyone talks about this 12 year mark uh there was a paper published i believe that said there's going to be irreversible changes to earth um uh by the time um or within 12 in 12 years and some people you know say oh, we're all going to end we're all going to die. But that, that's uh, obviously a hyperbole. Um, but, you know, when you th- when you think about when, when you're talking I'm, I'm, and I'm listening, I'm like, OK, so to build a nuclear reactor, it's going to take a lot of time. It's, it's expensive. Um, so and if you have 12 years to do all this, I mean, I don't really necessarily believe that. But what are your thoughts on all of that?
1: Now, uh, a couple first is that 12 years is an awfully precise number. Yeah. So so does that mean that if we get everything fixed in eleven years, three hundred sixty-four days, we'll be okay? But if if there's a leap year, we might be screwed. Yeah. You know, it just. I, I I don't really know if I buy twelve years. If somebody told me fifteen to twenty years, or within the next half century,
0: a confidence that, interval. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But <laughs> it, it, as a scientist, I just am not quite sure that I buy this. If we don't fix everything in twelve years, yeah. You know, to to me, that sounds more like. Oh I was going to say propaganda, but that's not quite the right word and and I don't mean to sound as though I'm saying that we don't need to do anything, but I'm dubious of that twelve year comment the The other thing I guess I should say is that i I mentioned earlier my bachelor's and master's are in geology, and so I'm used to thinking in time scales along the lines of millions, tens of millions, or hundreds of millions of years for my doctoral research. I was looking back four billion years and
0: Wow,
1: uh, yeah, maybe over a beer sometime I can talk to you about <laughs> high potassium clays. It's fascinating.
0: <laughs> sounds like that sounds like a good beer chat. <laughs>
1: yeah, but yeah, but, but one of the things that that longer perspective gives you is kind of looking at Earth as it's been throughout its history right. as opposed to what it's been like throughout recorded history or through the history of accurate scientific measurements. And, you know, especially when people start getting really catastrophic and saying, oh, my God, we're going to kill all the life on Earth. Well, we're we're probably not, because for most of Earth's history, there's been no ice. You know, most of Earth's history, the climate has been what we call global warming. And that's that's the norm for the Earth. Or maybe another way to put it is right now, the Earth is abnormally cold compared to its history. You know, there's been times in the past where Earth was colder, you know, ice ages or even a a time called snowball earth where the earth might've been covered from pole to equator with ice for millions of years. And life has managed to survive all of those back in the Devonian when land plants first started coming out, CO2 levels were sky high, much higher than what we're looking at now by a couple orders of magnitude and life survived. You know, so when somebody says that burning the coal, burning the oil underground is going to kill all life on Earth, I have to admit to being dubious because all that CO2 used to be in the atmosphere before it started being sequestered by plants after plants evolved. When people say that global warming is going to kill all of humanity, again, I'm dubious because for that to happen, the temperatures would have to get high enough so that the last human would die. And if nothing else, we've shown that we're a fairly adaptable species. You know, there's people right now who are living in fairly hot climates like the, you know, the the deserts of Africa, of the Middle East, jungles and places like that. And even if those places become uninhabitable, there's nobody who's suggesting that the entire planet is going to become uninhabitable. So, you know, and I'm not saying that we should look forward to just relocating everybody from the equator to the Canadian Shield or Siberia or whatever, But the fact is that the entire earth is not going to become uninhabitable to the point where the last human dies and certainly not to the point where the last organism dies. So when people start saying that, it tells me that either A, they don't understand the science or B, they don't understand earth history or C, they're trying to get your attention. And most of the time I figure it's probably a a combination of those. So and and I'm not trying to make light of global warming. You know, it would not be fun or easy to relocate say everybody in bangladesh to tibet or wherever we would try to relocate them to and i also don't want to see everybody in bangladesh drown or any of the other low-lying countries but at the same time when somebody comes around saying oh my god oh my god we're all going to die people have been predicting the end of the world for millennia and so far as far as i can tell it hasn't happened right
0: and and i think too um attributing every storm or hurricane, you know, is this is global warming and this is how, you know, it, there's sort of a kind of like a, a zombie ac- apocalypse feel to it, you know, the way we talk about it. Um, but, uh, and, you know, I, I think I, I was mentioning to you the other day, I'm like, well, what about the polar bears? I want to see the polar bears survive.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it, it, and that gets into stuff too i mean oh, what do i want to say it at some point we've got to start placing our own personal judgments on a lot of these things you know and j- just as one example i also like polar bears if nothing else they make for nice coke commercials but <laughs> no, nobody really mourned the demise of the smallpox virus so we're saying based on our human judgments that polar bears are more important than smallpox Can we really make that assessment? You know, right now, there's a lot of people who are trying to wipe out the plasmodium that causes malaria. And that will be another extinction if we manage to succeed in that. It'll be a human-caused extinction and one that everybody celebrates. Right. But how do we know that the polar bears are more important in the giant overall scheme of things than plasmodium are or the smallpox virus? You know, every time we say that this species is extinct or is going to be extinct and that's a tragedy, we're we're making a human judgment that to us it's a tragedy. We don't know if it's a tragedy to the planet or not. But the other thing is that if you go back through geologic history, the vast majority of species that come into being go extinct. Species have a life cycle, as humans do. They start off, they grow, they thrive for a while, then they die. That's the typical life cycle of a species, or they metamorphose into something else through evolution.
0: So you're so, saying the humans are the human. We are going. We are going to go extinct too. So
1: it, at some point we will. <laughs> but again, if you think about it, like a, or the human species as a human life, at some point humanity is going to die or it's going to turn into something else. That's just part of the way the cycle goes. But at the same time, we don't want to hasten that.
0: Right. 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 Um, some. Uh, I, I I hear you on that. So nuclear energy is not going to save all the humans and save all the polar bears. Um, and sometimes there's just a natural cycle that we have to accept.
1: Yeah. And here, I guess one analogy that comes to mind is it's it's like cancer and radiation. We know that radiation causes cancer. We know that it's not very good at it. So I've been working with radiation my entire adult life. I might get cancer. If I do, there's no way that I can look at that cancer and say that cancer came from this occupational radiation exposure because cancer happens randomly anyhow.
0: Similarly,
1: if a species goes extinct, we can't look at that species going extinct and say this was due to global warming because species go extinct all the time. If there's a hurricane, we can't look at that hurricane and say that hurricane was due to global warming because hurricanes happen all the time. You know, what we can do with all of those is we can look at the prevalence over time and to see how that's changing. We look at a population exposed to radiation and we see that that population has a little bit more cancer than populations with everything else the same that weren't exposed to radiation, that's when we can say that radiation is causing some of those. It's responsible for the increase, but we still can't look at any individual cancer and say that's from radiation. Just as if we look at killer storms or if we look at species extinction over time and see that they're going up, we can say, okay, part of this is obviously due to human-caused events or part of this is due to global warming, but again, we can't look at any single instance and say that one is due to global warming. The others are not.
0: Um, thank you, Andy. So I just want to finish up here because we're at the 35 minute mark. Um, website books, if anybody wanted to uh, read more from you, I highly recommend it. Um, where would they find you? Well,
1: I actually do have a website. It's needs to be updated a little bit, but it's at www.andrewkaram.com. That's all one word, A-N-D-R-E-W-K-A-R-A-M. And it's got links to some of the work that I've done on radiation, some of my scientific papers. In addition, it's got a contact me thing. And if you fill that out, that'll shoot me off an email.
0: And, I, and anybody who wants to know anything about nuclear, I highly recommend it. Andy is your guy. Um Thanks so much, Andy. I really appreciate this, and I look forward to the feedback, and hopefully uh, we'll bring you on for another episode. That
1: Sounds good. Yeah, you (laughs) ask good questions.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Andy. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you especially to Andy for coming on and educating us, really. That was amazing. Um, As always, consider subscribing to the podcast. Share it with your friends. um, And if you have any questions or comments for me, you can reach me at bloomingwellness.com. Okay, guys, take care and enjoy the rest of your day.